Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Oh, those loons are so pretty. I love me some loons. Hopefully everybody had an awesome Canada Day and uh, an amazing July 4th. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's uh, America's Canada Day. Forgive us. It's true. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host Scott Hemingway. Hey, everybody. It seems like just moments ago we finished that other episode. This week just flew by. I know. It's, 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 it feels good to be back in your presence. Oh. Yeah. I am gassy. What's new? Exactly. Uh, Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians interested in true crime and the darker side of history. Let's get to it. Grab your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an enamel bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. double-double burger last week at uh, White Spot. Very it's good. cheeseburger, two patties with two slices of cheese. And two, uh, two cream and two sugars? No. Uh, was it good? Yes. Cool. This is episode 34 and part two of our first away game. We want to start out as we usually do by thanking our regular subscribers and welcome new listeners. We appreciate that you're filling your ears with our dark poutine. Don't let it burn you though. Exactly. Um, Scott had a really great suggestion about an audio clip that we should play. Happens a lot. I'm full of right. some great suggestions. The character's name is Anton Chekhov. Mm-hmm. And uh, he will be asking for nuclear whistles. I'm looking for nuclear whistles. Did you find it? Yes, under U.S. government. Now we need directions. Excuse me, sir. Can you direct me to the naval base in Alameda? It's where they keep the nuclear vessels. Nuclear vessels. Excuse us. Oh, excuse me. Uh, we are looking for nuclear vessels. Can you tell me where the naval base is in Alameda? We're, we're looking for nu- Hello. We are looking for the nuclear vessels in Alameda. Could you tell me where... Can you, you help us? Please, we're looking for the naval base in Alameda. Could you tell me where the nuclear vessels are? No. Ooh, I don't know if I know the answer to that. I think it's across the bay, in Alameda. That's what I said, Alameda. Alameda. I know but that. But where is Alameda? So, there you have it. 
that movie came out in the, the height of the Cold War. Yeah, very close to the end. Yeah, I so think it was like nineteen eighty-seven uh, or eighty-eight. So you've got a Russian walking around the United States of America asking for nuclear vessels, nuclear whistles. Do you know where they are? The nuclear vessels. <laughs> oh boy. That's all I, every time I think of Russia, I'm sorry. That's what I think. Of. So yes, we are back in the USSR. Hey, look, Beatles reference. Well done, Mike. Uh, this is part two of two in our series. Don't start with this episode. Uh, you want to go back one to learn about Andre Chikatilo's early life, crimes, and first 30 odd yeah. murders. But yeah, don't don't start on this one. You 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 miss it unless you're dyslexic. I guess that can like you could listen to the second part first. I'm mildly dyslexic. It's quite fun. Yeah. So then you can start on this episode. I see words very interesting. Yeah, yeah. you do. Many serial killers are caught long before they amass such a body count. We had to break this into two. And I mentioned last week that I really hate not spending as much time with the victims. Yep. But. We will do our best. The USSR's pride and unwillingness to look at the facts of the cases as a series played a big part in making an easy hunting ground for Chikatilo. How unlike the USSR in the Cold War. Prideful and, and, and unwilling to look at facts. Yeah, that is, wow. Amazing. Shattering stereotypes here. His murders were brutal and sadistic. He would stab people multiple times, usually kids <sighs> and young women. Sometimes in non-fatal ways at first, as the blood and the fear that his victims showed him drove him wild sexually. Oh, Jesus. He would tear his victims to pieces, love the taste of blood and human flesh. Do we have to start off this intense? Can't we like maybe this, talk about We unicorns? started off with nuclear vessels. Funny nuclear vessels. Yeah. As with many psychopaths, Chikatilo was adept at compartmentalizing. He was a married man with two children, after all. His family had no idea about his sadistic hobbies. To them, he was a meek weirdo obsessed with the communist ideals who could not keep a steady job. But he was away from home a lot. Yep. He's got his second home that they don't know about. At one point he did, yep. Is he, does he not by this point? I don't know. I'm going to say yes. <laughs> The three months Chikatilo spent in prison in late 1984 on theft charges, coupled with his close call at being almost caught for the murders, forced Andre to do what he could to keep his demonic desires in check. And he did so until August of 1985. And that's when his obsession to kill overwhelmed him again, and he began hunting once more. Great. Chikatilo saw his next victim, intellectually challenged 18-year-old Natalia Poklistova, on a train near Domodevo on August 1st. He noticed she was poorly dressed and knew he could get what he wanted if he offered her some food and a drink. <clears throat> Natalia and Andre headed into the woods where she willingly disrobed for him as he took off his pants. Later on, he stated that he just wanted to have sex with the girl. When he failed at normal intercourse, as many times before, he became enraged. Chikatilo stabbed Natalia 38 times before strangling her. Jesus. The next day, a man picking mushrooms came across her grisly remains. Oh, that's got to be a terrifying find. Can't, I can't imagine. I mean, I've come across some weird things in the woods, but nothing like that. No, I, you can't be prepared to stumble across no. something like that. It'll damage you. Absolutely. It'd be bad enough finding a human dead, but one that's been mutilated the way this guy did. And I'm assuming that mushroom picking for individuals like him are a pretty tranquil, meditative kind of yeah, an activity. Just, here you go. You're yeah. out in the morning. Yeah. 
beautiful day. You're out picking mushrooms. Oh, here's a bloody body. Fantastic. See, just shocked you, not what you were expecting. The police knew the same killer was responsible. All the signatures were there. He was mm. active again. Yeah. On August 2nd, 1985, Chikatilo killed another 18-year-old intellectually challenged homeless woman named Irina Guleyeva. This almost mirrored the previous murder, but not only in victimology, but M.O. The girl had been lured from a bus stop with promises of food and drink for sex. Hmm. Police were finally able to put together a profile of their killer, thanks to matching evidence collected at the numerous crime scenes. From Peter Conradi's book, Red Ripper, quote, Age, from 25 to 55. Tall, well-developed physically. Blood group, 4th AB. Shoe size, 43 or more. Wears dark glasses, well turned out. Carries with him an attache case or briefcase in which he keeps sharp knives. He had like 23 of them. Oh, wow. He suffers from mental disorder on the basis of sexual perversion, onanism, which is masturbation to completion at the scene, pedophilia, necrophilia, homosexuality, and sadism. Well, one of those isn't a sexual perversion, but Russia. Yeah. Cold War. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I am not writing that this is yeah, a sexual yeah. perversion yeah. to be homosexual. It, yeah. It is possible that he suffers from impotence. He also has some knowledge of human anatomy, most likely place of initial contact with his victims on the local train, at the railway station, and at bus stations. Inventive in the way he carries out his criminal acts. His job allows him to move about freely within the area of the towns of Rostov, Shakti, and two other names that I am not even going to pronounce. Can Russians pronounce these? Of course they can. Okay. It's probably like Tatamagush or Muscadabit. To them. That's making me giggle. Or Shubanakity. <laughs> Interesting how close they were with this profile. They also started looking at the geography of the crimes. Kim Rosmo of the Vancouver Police Department used geography to help to catch Willie Picton. Yeah. Police looked at almost 200,000 men who may fit their profile and they started to talk to each of them. That's only a couple. 200,000. Yeah. And this is in 1980. Five. Yeah, they're still looking at those 200,000, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, up until he was caught in 1990, yep. Chikatilo followed news of the investigations obsessively in the paper. He didn't kill again in 1985. He was scared to get caught and didn't want to go back to jail, let alone be sentenced to death, which he assumed he would. In 1986, a few murders were looked at as part of the Forest Pass series, but they weren't conclusively tied to the others. In May of 1987... Chikatilo could no longer contain himself. He murdered 12-year-old Oleg Makarenkov, a boarding student. It was thought that Oleg had run away until Chikatilo later led police to his body after his capture. Mm. On July 29, 1987, the six-year anniversary when I got pounced on, 12-year-old Ivan Bilovetsky did not come home on time. His mother frantically searched for him late into the night and was unable to find him. The next morning, a search party led by Ivan's father went looking for the boy. Only 20 minutes later, they found Ivan's mangled corpse near the train tracks close by. Yeah. Ivan's mother spoke at Chikatilo's trial later on, again from Peter Conradi's book, Red Ripper. Quote, The day I buried my son, I gave him my word that I would try to live long enough to see his killer with my own eyes. She was to declare as she broke down giving evidence during Chikatilo's trial several years later. I wanted to see this man who could rip open my son's stomach and then stuff mud into his mouth so that he would not cry out. I wanted to know what he looked like. 
to know which mother could bear such an animal. And now I see him. Oh, that poor lady. And it's interesting that she brings up the mud and saying that it was to keep him from crying out. So maybe that is why he maybe used stuff in the mouth with dirt. Could have been. Yeah. Could have been. Because these are, most of these are out in public. So. Yeah. And some of the some of the dirt stuffing in the mouths, though, I found that the police thought was post-mortem. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. But interesting theory. Yeah. Chikatilo killed again on September 15, 1987. He coaxed a 16-year-old vocational student, Yuri Tershonikov, off a train and murdered him in the woods. Again, it was assumed Yuri had just disappeared, but Chikatilo also showed police where his body lay years later. Hmm. Sometime in early April 1988, Chikatilo killed an unknown woman near a metal factory. This murder was followed on May 15th when nine-year-old Alexei Voronko disappeared and turned up dead. Then, on July 14th, Yevgeny Muratov, 15, was brutally slain. Muratov didn't fit the usual pattern of small, meek children or alcoholics or down-on-their-luck teenage victims and prostitutes. This young man was physically fit. Investigators were baffled by this murder in particular, as they were unsure why Yevgeny would have gone with his murderer. Chikatilo later cleared things up, saying he'd asked the boy to help carry his things to his cottage through the woods. Yevgeny's kindness is what got him killed. Hmm, tragic. In 1989, things really began to change in the USSR. A progressive name, by communist standards anyway, named Mikhail Gorbachev had risen to power. He knew the country was in trouble and proposed wide-sweeping reforms. Amid the change, Chikatilo killed again. Probably a prime time. Absolutely. It was the perfect time for him to do what he did. On July 11, 1989, 15-year-old Tanya Rizova disappeared. Tanya had run off. She'd been partying with some boys, but soon tired of that. She did not return home, but went out onto the streets on her own. Around March 1, 1989, she met Andre Chikatilo. Chikatilo lured Tanya with the promise of food and drink to his daughter's state-owned apartment. It stood empty after her divorce. This is how long he's been doing it now, you know? Mm. Chikatilo had told his daughter he would swap the two-bedroom for two smaller apartments, but was dragging his feet getting it done. It gave him the perfect place to bring somebody. Mm-hmm. Once inside the apartment, Chikatilo pushed the girl down to the floor and attempted to have sex with her. Again, he was unable to an erection, and the girl became upset, now demanding 500 rubles and threatening to have Chikatilo killed. He saw red. Neighbors recalled having heard screams that night but didn't know where they were coming from. Chikatilo stabbed the girl in the mouth. He achieved the pleasure he was seeking as she choked on her own blood. He, he's definitely got an oral thing. A lot of focus on the mouth. Yeah. Interesting. He'd only killed indoors once before, and that was his very first one, back way back in 1978. This place, though, was in the middle of the city, and was nowhere near as isolated as the place he'd murdered Lena Zakotnova. He dismembered this girl, bundled up her body parts, and mopped the floor. He took the bundles out that night and stuffed them into a culvert near some train tracks. Hmm. When Tanya's remains were found, cops knew the killer was back. Again, they had no leads. On the day after his eighth birthday, on May 11, 1989, Alexander Diakonov disappeared and was later found mutilated in some bushes. On June 20, 1989, 10-year-old Alexei Moiseev was taken by Chikatilo from a beach into the woods and butchered. On August 19th, Yelena Varga, a 19-year-old student from Hungary, followed Chikatilo into the forest near Rostov. She, too, was later found torn apart. Jesus. Alexei Kobotov... 10, vanished on August 28, 1989. After going to the theater, 
Chikatilo later led police to a shallow grave containing Alexei's remains in a Shakti cemetery. Mm. Chikatilo had promised to show the boy his collection of horror films. Mm -hmm. Chikatilo had cut off this boy's sexual organs and bitten off his tongue. Jesus. I kind of need a break after that one. So do I. Chikatilo started killing early in 1990. He began to see himself as the savior of sorts. He was ridding the motherland of the weak and unwanted. He was cleaning things up. Well, then he would have killed himself. He should have. On January 14th, 1990, Chikatilo lured another horror movie fan with the same promise. Come to my cottage in the woods and watch videos. Never a yes to that. This time it was Andrei Kravchenko. He was 11. Kravchenko chatted with Chikatilo about his favorite films as they wandered into the woods to the boy's end. Oh, God. The child's emasculated corpse was found in the same woods. Wow. In March, Yaroslav Marakov, 10, was skipping school and ran into Andrei Chikatilo at a train station. The next day, his brutally mangled body was found. He was missing his tongue and genitals. Yeah, this oral fixation. And really, there's got to be. I'd love to hear from a profile or what they believe it's about did he have a stutter did he have a speech impediment? ask jim clementi yeah in april of 1990 leobov zuyeva an intellectually challenged 31 year old woman was heading to shakti by train she was targeted by chikatilo he lured her into the woods and butchered her she wasn't even known to be missing for months until a friend called police not having heard from her in a while when they found her, she wasn't recognizable, and dental records had to be used to verify her identity. Yuck. On July 28, 1990, Viktor Petrov, 13, was killed in the same botanical garden as Yaro Marakov only five months previous. God, this guy's a monster. He literally, literally is. I just, like, I'm reading a list of these horrible murders of children. And they just keep coming. Like, the list just keeps going. Yeah. On August 14, 1990, Ivan Foman, 11, was at a municipal beach with friends. He went into the woods to change his clothes and never came out. Good God. His father, a seasoned prison guard, led a search party for his son. Only three days later, Ivan's horribly mangled and emasculated body was found. He'd been ripped apart by a knife, showing at least 45 different wounds. <sighs> Ivan's father fainted at the sight of his son. Oh, that poor man. And he was a seasoned prison guard, so yeah. he'd probably seen a lot in his oh, day. My God, I, I can't imagine. Vladi Gromov was a 16-year-old intellectually challenged boy who lived in Shakti. He dropped out of school and was looking for jobs in nearby towns with no luck. On October 17, 1990, Vladi met Andrei Chikatilo on the train. Chikatilo struck up a conversation with the boy who was barely five feet tall and thin as a rail. Chikatilo lied to Vladi, telling him there were girls at a cottage to have fun with just a few stops away. The two got off the train, walked into the woods, almost 300 meters. Chikatilo got excited, and in the same spot where he'd killed Yevgeny Muratov two years earlier, he pounced on Vladi, tearing off his pants. Jeez. After Chikatilo climaxed while rubbing his penis on the boy's buttocks, Vladi tried to escape. Chikatilo tied him up, tore off the rest of his clothes, and bit off the boy's tongue. Fuck. He stabbed young Vladi repeatedly before cutting off his genitals and throwing them into some bushes. Oh, my God. He covered Vladi with leaves, used the boy's clothes to wash the blood from his hands, and went home. What a depraved human being. Yes. Holy very shit. Very much so. 
well, probably deprived of a lot of love. Deprived of any Morals. sort of moral. Yeah. yeah. Police finally had a plan. Most of the att- Jesus, it's about fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> like, sick. seriously. Yeah. No, exactly my thoughts. This is crazy that yeah. it went on this long. The plan was to obviously overwhelm the larger train stations with visible uniform presence of police. They were told to stop and publicly question any man they saw trying to chat with women or children. Then, at a few of the quieter stations, they would place undercover operatives to watch for suspicious characters fitting the profile and observe them. Hmm. From Wikipedia, quote, police deployed 360 men at all the stations in the Rostov Oblast. Oblast is a province. Oh, okay. But only undercover officers were posted at the three smallest stations en route through the Oblast, where the killer had struck most frequently. Kirpichnaya, Donleskov, and Lesostep. Did I say all those correctly? I Sounds think like it. The plan went into effect on October 27, 1990. On October 30th, somehow, Chikatilo slipped past the police presence. Holy shit. Victor Tishchenko, 16, was reported missing. His mutilated body was found three days later. A ticket taker remembered a man in his 50s wearing glasses lurking in the train station behind Victor as he bought his ticket. The ticket taker's daughter had seen the same man trying to talk to children in the train in the same week. Hmm. November 6, 1990. A police officer saw a middle-aged man coming out of the woods at the train station at Don Lascos. He wore glasses and a gray suit. He had a satchel with a strap slung over his shoulder. The man washed his hands at the spigot near the platform, and as he walked by the undercover officer, the cop noticed a bandage on his finger and a red stain on one of his cheeks. Hmm. The man was dirty, covered in leaves that looked like he'd been laying down in the woods. Hmm. His boots were covered in mud. The cop approached the man and asked for his papers. Papers, please. His passport read, Chikatilo, Andrei Romanovich. Oh, please tell me this officer apprehends him. Chikatilo claimed he'd been visiting a friend nearby. In the bushes? The policeman handed him back his papers, and Chikatilo got on the next train and left. No, no. That's what happened. No. The cop, though, had a gut feeling that something was amiss. He kept going over the meeting in his mind. The cop had no idea that Chikatilo had been a previous suspect, but something felt off. As it was a holiday, it would have to wait. On November 13, 1990, the body of a 22-year-old woman named Svetlana Korostik was found close to the station that Chikatilo had been spotted at. She'd been missing since the 6th, the day a dirty Chikatilo had exited the woods. Yeah. The main investigators of the case questioned police who were on duty over the last few weeks. They heard the name Andrei Romanovich Chikatilo and remembered him immediately from the 1984 investigations. Investigators began to follow Chikatilo, waiting for him to incriminate himself. On November 20, 1990, Chikatilo was observed talking to a young boy, offering him beer to get off the train and come to his cottage to watch videos. The boy refused the persistent Chikatilo. Cops had seen enough. When Chikatilo was off the train... Plainclothes officers surrounded him while he was standing outside a cafe. He was cuffed and put into a waiting car without any fight at all. Hmm. He was driven back to Rostov for questioning. They looked in his satchel and found... Nothing. A sharp knife with a nine-inch blade, two lengths of rope, and a pocket mirror. Not sure what that yeah, was for. interesting. At first, Chikatilo denied even having been out of the house on November 6th. It was impossible for him to have been seen at the train station. 
Cops knew they were in for the long haul. Chikatilo was giving them nothing. Hmm. Police in Russia at the time had limited time they could detain someone without charging him. They needed him to talk. He clammed up for more than a week. But when he did talk, he wanted to talk about how he was being persecuted. They worked hard on him. He started talking about his inappropriate behavior with his former students first, but would go into no further detail, especially about any murders. Mm. A psychiatrist was brought in to talk to him, and Chikatilo finally began opening up. He began to talk about what he'd done. He was first charged with premeditated murder of 36 women and children between 1982 and 1990. He admitted to the murder of Lena Zakodnova in 1978 as his first and went on to claim he'd murdered a total of 56 people. Wow. He took police to find the bodies they'd not known about. Chikatilo even acted out a few of the murders on mannequins to show them what he'd done. Yeah, I think there's photos of that. Yes, I found those. He admitted to chewing on the parts of his victims he'd removed and then he would spit them out. There's a lot of photos of uh, crime scene as well. Oh, is that? Yeah, I'm not posting any of those. you don't. Chikatilo was turned on by the sight and taste of blood, he said, and the act of stabbing. He mentioned he liked chewing on a woman's uterus, saying it felt springy in his mouth. Holy fuck. Chikatilo's wife was in complete denial. There's no way she could have lived with him for over 25 years and not known what was going on. Well, she didn't think it was him. Yeah, well, I I can understand. She probably really didn't, but he did. The investigation went on into the summer of 1991. Prosecutors felt they could convict Chikatilo for 53 murders. Court-appointed psychiatrists found him fit to stand trial. In the spring of 1992, the farcical trial of Andre Chikatilo began. And I call it farcical for a reason. If you remember this at all, it was quite a zoo. The courtroom was packed with families of victims and observers, and they all wanted to catch a glimpse of this monster who'd done such horrific things. People who could not get in gathered in crowds outside. Up from the basement, like some macabre character from a horror movie, came Chikatilo flanked by uniformed guards. He was wearing his glasses, gray pants, and a baggy dress shirt that was red, white, and blue, and had Olympic rings logo all over it. No wonder the Olympic Committee loathes Russia. That was not good advertising. <laughs> I'm so kidding. The guards showed Chikatilo into the cage that had been constructed for the trial and locked him in, displaying him just like the predator that he was. Mm-hmm. He even pulled a porno magazine from his pocket and held it open for all to see. Yeah, I remember, I remember this cage. I remember him doing that. Yeah. People in the crowd yelled foul things at him. Mothers of victims sobbed openly. Some even tried to get at him in the cage and had to be held back. Here's some audio of people at the trial. Chikatilo would yell and interrupt the trial as much as he could, probably as he knew what awaited him afterward. From Peter Conradi's book, The Red Ripper, after a particularly noisy standoff with the bench, 
Chikatilo stripped off all his clothes and began waving his penis at the court. Oh, I wasn't remembering him. Look at this useless thing, he declared. What do you think I could do with that? End quote. Jesus Christ. Yuck. Everything about that is wrong. It's just, yuck. Yeah. This creepy old dude waving his dink around. Yeah. He was removed from the trial for a few days after that, returning only after promising to behave, which he didn't do. <laughs> you, wait, you can't trust the serial killer? I guess not. Well, shit. Chikatilo's wife testified, saying she knew nothing about his crimes and said she never loved him anyway. <laughs> I can believe that. He was dead to her. She'd married him only because he didn't drink or smoke. Well, that's some good criteria. There you go. As the trial dragged on, people just stopped coming. There were only a few who made it every day, but it was nowhere near as busy as it had been when it started. Chikatilo would make weird, open-mouthed faces for court photographers. It was assumed he was faking insanity to escape the executioner. Well, wouldn't you? I guess so. Yeah, but it's not going to work yet. No. On the last day of his trial, he decided it was time to take his pants off again and waggle his junk around. Oh, sure. When it finally came time for the verdict to be read, Chikatilo was screaming from his cage things like, I withdraw my confessions and other pleas to see a doctor. Here's some audio of Andre Chikatilo on the last day of the trial. You'll hear Chikatilo arguing with the judge and finally the judge pronouncing sentence and the crowd cheering. Trying to outdo Chikatilo's ranting, like that, it's just a noise. Well, I think at that point in time, his trial's concluding, he's just doing he's just doing anything he can to try to get things delayed or start over. Well, uh, the judge, Leonid B. Akubzanov, yelled, irrespective of any mitigating circumstances, taking into account the extraordinary cruelty of the crimes, the court cannot but give him the only punishment he deserves, the supreme measure of punishment, and sentences him to death. What did Chikatilo do? He kept yelling. Oh, well, you didn't take it calmly and rationally? No, oh. and the judge screamed again, Chikatilo, you are sentenced to death. Do you understand? Chikatilo shot back, Crooks, I fought for free Russia and free Ukraine. Oh, well, okay then. Our, yeah. our bad. Andrei Romanovich Chikatilo was then removed from his cage and taken back to his cell in Novocherkask prison, where he would wait on death row for his final sentence to be carried out. Mike, I really, really do feel for you with these names. I feel you, for you, me too. You, you are pushing through it. It's like pushing out a poop. It really is. Oy. An odd-shaped one. <laughs> An appeal to then-President Boris Yeltsin was denied, and all of Chikatilo's appeals were exhausted by January 1994. Hmm, good. On Valentine's Day 1994, Andrei Romanovich Chikatilo was dragged from his cell and taken to a soundproof room with a little drain in the floor. A gun was put behind his right ear, and bang, 
Thus ended the life of Andre Chikatilo, the Rostov Ripper. What the fuck? They were still <laughs> executing people with with just a pistol. Holy, you know, I'm like, I'm not saying that's it worked. Any, I'm not saying it's any worse than like electrocuting somebody. But I just, I, I didn't know they were still like yep, uh, non-third world countries executing people. According oh, wow. to a few sources, Chikatilo's final words were, don't blow my brains out. The Japanese want them. Oh, Okay, well, uh, because the Japanese, they, they are they collecting them? <laughs> like I don't know what, what's his logic here. He himself said he was a mistake of nature. That's a pretty big mistake. If you ask. A gigantic mistake. So there you go. That is uh, the Rostov Ripper. Gee, what a piece of shit! A, not a good man. No. I, he had zero redeeming qualities. Zero. zero. Uh, uh, Other know, than the fact, uh, the the one bit of compassion I felt for the guy was that he apparently was kind to his children early on. Okay. That was it. Well, that's good. Uh, I Like many, many cases that we go over, I can empathize with their childhood. I can I can empathize with what got yeah, them sure. to, to where they are, but uh, that that doesn't mean that there's any justification. I know for... people who have had pretty shitty childhoods, and they are not serial killers who kill fifty six people. Well, you, you know that's a whole other conversation of uh, nature versus nurture. Uh, yeah, but uh, uh, but. It, a traumatic childhood is a traumatic childhood, no matter what you go on to, to commit. Like, that was a terrible fucking childhood. But what a piece of garbage. Yep. Fuck him. You know what? Shoot him in the head. They did. Yes. <laughs> they blew his face off. They, they listened to me. Yep. Another Russian serial killer, Alexander Pushkin, mm -hmm. called the chessboard killer because he wanted uh, a victim for all 64 squares of a chessboard. Oh, he claimed Chikatilo inspired his crimes. Pushkin got to 60 before he was caught in 2006. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit. But I think he was only tried or convicted on 30 of those. Yeah, yeah I remember it was less than Chikatilo. Yeah, but he claimed he had killed 60. The monster got away with so many crimes essentially due to the pride and ideology of communism, in my opinion. The belief was that this kind of thing only happened in the West, but it wasn't until the country became more open to Western ideas that the, the murders were actually yeah. solved. Yeah, yeah. You know, they even had gotten some information from Japan about new DNA techniques that they just kind of pushed to the side as well. Oh, maybe that's why they wanted brains. <laughs> I don't think that had anything no? to do uh, with it. Yeah, whatever. No. I'm, I'm trying, man. I'm trying to put things together here, Mike. <laughs> This was all indicative of the time in the USSR as it was partially the system's denial of the existence of these and other human faults that led to the ultimate downfall of the communist era in yeah, Russia. Yeah, totally. Crazy covering such a large, large case, and this is why I tend to avoid them. Yeah. I don't like uh, spending this little time. I know I've said this a few times through the podcast. But it's important to talk about. But yeah, those the victims deserve way more yeah. than we gave them. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it, 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 for the condensed time frames that we have, it's just not possible. Sadly. Yeah, I mean, that's this will be our first away game, and it'll be our last one until probably around September sometime. Yeah. We've got some ideas about another one then, but 
that's essentially what we want to do. Yep. We'll get back to our uh, Canadian crime next week, and I've got a really wacky one. The Great Poutine Robbery of 1604? No. Uh, no, this this one is actually a case that I I was going through my work notes, just deleting a bunch of notes from work because I don't work there anymore. <laughs> and <laughs> and one of them was an idea that had come to me about this case, and it had the word bum in it. So I'm just going to leave that as a teaser. <laughs> just, yeah. Mike? It, you had me at bum. <laughs> That's actually my favorite word in the English language. Is it really? Bum. Oh, man. I love the word bum. Really? Oh, it just does it for me like bum. I don't, I don't, oh, I can't nail down a favorite word. A favorite phrase is probably douche canoe. Um, but that oh, the captain uses. I know, but that doesn't mean it can't. Also, you were using it before I heard him use it. Oh, I've but been using it in my life. Also, He the, probably was too, but. Sure. Also twat waffle. That is a good one, but rather rude. It's totally rude. Yeah. Yeah. We just talked about a man eating kids. I'm pretty sure I can get away with twat waffle. Bum. Twat. You know what word Carol really likes? Moist. Moist. And she also likes it when you pretend like you can't breathe, like you're in outer space. Yes. She she really is a big fan. She's of... actually better with that now. Oh, but... is she? Yeah. She's been meditating and she, she understands that there is enough air for everybody. <laughs> I used to I used to enjoy watching space movies with her. Yeah, I'd like to spend uh, uh, a little more time doing like a series, as I've mentioned. Mm -hmm. Look at Mike Ferguson and Mike Morford. They do uh, a, a podcast called Criminology, which I really really like, mm -hmm. and they cover a series for each season. So, for example, season one was their take on the Zodiac, and season two was about the East Area Rapist, an original Night Stalker, who was captured in the middle of this this season. Just as they planned it? Yeah, yeah, just as they planned it. But they are fantastic. Uh, I, I met them very briefly at CrimeCon. They're great guys. Uh, they both do other podcasts as well, like True Crime all the time. I've always been kind of fascinated by Soviet culture and architecture, not because I'm a communist, because I'm definitely not, it's just so different and alien than what we grew up with. Oh, yeah. I'm Watching the, people stand in line for toilet paper. And our, their architecture is quite fascinating. Uh, for a while there, I was really into urban exploration. I've never done it because I'm afraid of prison. But, uh, you know, where you go and you... I've done lots of that. You, you go and you photograph uh, abandoned... Uh, Malcolm and I did that. Well, place. Malcolm, you bad boy. Well, I was there too. Well, I don't. I had the GoPro on my head. Without, you, you're a bad boy, no matter what. I don't have to say it. Yeah. But Malcolm needs to hear it. Uh, but like, yeah. So like, it, I, some of the most fascinating places are in uh, are, are in Russia. Oh, for the love of Chernobyl. Well, that's like a uh, uh, urban explorer's uh, one of their utopias, minus the. Uh, uh, radioactivity yeah but uh but no like there's there's this one really crazy one it's one of my favorite ones i oh god i wish i could remember what it was called right now but it's i'll, I'll post it in the um, yard even before this but it's a uh it looks like a, a ufo in the middle of nowhere oh, i've seen that yeah, yeah it's such a fascinating place but yeah the chernobyl's one of the uh best places everything soviet looks just kind of shitty 
you know, like look at their cars, like the Trabant and the Lada. Skoda. And Skoda. Guess, the, yeah. Everything's just boxy and shitty and practical. Well, but when a lot of these things created in the Cold War, it was about things being utilitarian. Absolutely. Not things being aesthetically pleasing. It's just, no, we just need, we need a thing and we need a place to house things. Yes. You know, not like, oh, let's, let's look at the lines. Look and at how the sun reflects take, off. Of yeah. This. And taking time to be more artistic about it would have been considered decadent, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And more Western and that can't be. No, no, it's no. It's not utilitarian. It does not serve the people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But like, yeah, unless it's a UFO shaped building. So there's this really great game called Papers, Please. Have you ever played this? Mm, I don't think so. Papers, Please is cheap to buy on Steam or something like that. Like wherever you can find it, it's really cheap to buy. And it's like 8-bit gaming. Okay. So it's very, sh the graphics are very, very shitty. They're very 80s. It has a real kind of like, if you think about it, Soviet feel to it. Essentially what you are. So you're a communist bloc border officer, and it's up to you to ensure that everybody's papers are in order before they cross into the country. That's a game? Yes, it's a game. And people try to bribe you, and you're only getting so much money. At some point, you have to pick whether your son or your grandmother dies oh because God. you're not making enough money to keep the heat on in the house. My, my God. It's horrible. Jeez. It's very. It's horrible, but it's kind of fun. Are you sure this isn't a documentary you're talking about? No, it's called Papers, Please. Wow. Yeah. How old is it? A modern game? Yeah, Just... it's very modern. Like it was. It was put out. Uh, actually, Morgan Creelman, one of our prime ministers, when he worked for me, he turned me on to this game. Oh, wow. Him and uh, Alexander Reiska. So. Hmm. Yeah. I'm curious now. Yes, it's quite an interesting game. I'll show it to you at some point. Uh, after this episode drops, perhaps we'll post yeah, yeah. some Papers, Please yeah, video in the Yumber Yard. Let's do that. Yeah, because it, it it's, it's hilarious, but it gives you the feel of what it would be like to be a border guard in a communist bloc country in the 80s. Exciting. Papers, please. Exciting. And they keep yeah. changing the rules on you. Like the boss will change the rules. Like, okay, now you don't look for this particular visa. You look for a different kind of visa. If you do it wrong, like you get in trouble and you don't get paid. <laughs> then your, your family then, dies. Yeah, right? Your family's dying and you have to like, and if you take a bribe, the government's going to find out because where'd you get this money and why, why can you have these things that you and shouldn't then, have? And then your family's in the goulet. Exactly. There's no win in this game, Mike. Exactly. Oh my God. Oh, it's like I, I've played this game for hours. If uh, Wreck-It Ralph is real, yeah. that's not the game you want to be in. No. No. It, papers, please. <laughs> okay. Papers, please. And there's no actual talking. It's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and then the words print out. I got to Google. On the screen. It's, it's terrible, but good. I must Google nuclear vessel. Nuclear vessels. Before we go this week... We would like to thank a couple new Patreon patrons. They are Brianne Catherine from Hamilton, Ontario, where I will be on July 21st. Sweet. Welcome, Brianne. Welcome. Thank you very, very much. And also Cassie from Lakewood, Washington. Hey. Just across the border. Yeah. Hop, skip, and a jump away. Yep. 
Well, Lo- welcome, Cass. I love me some Washington State. It is pretty fantastic. Yeah, I call it Canadian, Canada, BC Junior. Yeah. BC, it's pretty similar. To There's it. something about Washington yeah. State that just, if you live in BC... The Pacific Northwest, I mean, yeah, like some of Oregon like and stuff as well. Yep. Yeah. I have to go down through Mount St. Helens again. I would love to see that. Oh, God, I'd love to go to Mount St. Helens. Yeah, we've been there before. It's pretty cool. But anyway, Lakewood, Washington. Thanks, Cassie. Thanks, Cassie. If you want to donate to us, you can do it at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or send us some donut money via PayPal. At our email, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Because I got some, I got some uh, donut hunger. Scott is hungry for donuts. Four donuts. You should see him. He is wasting away to nothing. Oh, yeah. And thank you to Jessica from the Asian Madness podcast for the stickers. And uh, I got a magnet on the fridge. And we'll put your sticker somewhere good. Scott will put your sticker somewhere well, good. Well, no. Okay, that sounded terrible. It, it did. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, like, I'm going to put it somewhere that people can see it. Jessica's good people. So listen to her podcast, Asian Madness Podcast. Do it or lose it. Exactly. Check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com for show notes and other stuff. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Dark Poutine. Tell your friends. Come to the Umber Yard. We are like way over 500 people now. We're sharing Umber. We're f- sharing Umber. People... Come provide Yumber. Don't worry, people. We will explain the why Yumber is a thing in our in our primer episode, which is coming up in a few weeks. Yumber. Yumber. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory, like iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. And again, you might notice that there's some ads in the middle of the podcast or not. We're trying to keep this thing running. So we joined a podcast network with a few of our other true crime podcast comrades. <laughs> like what I did. I see what you did there. Check it out at Murderly. Murder.ly. This Bentley ain't going to pay for itself. This Bentley. Yeah, the the Bentley. We don't have any Bentleys. Oh, you don't? No. Oh. What? Okay, well. Scott has yeah. a Bentley. In, in hey. other news, Scott hey. Hemingway has a Bentley. Hey, you live how you want to live. Oh, I'm not judging. Okay. Yeah. Bentley's a sweet ride, though. It is a sweet ride. Thanks to everybody who uh, listens, and you know what? Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Have a good week.